Hello, everybody. I have here with me Travis Barefoot, um, a physical therapist from PT Solutions, and uh, we're going to talk about strength training. So um, welcome to the show, Travis. How are you? Aaron, I am excited to be here. I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity to come on and speak with all of your viewers about strength training today. Uh, and I am hopefully going to be able to uh, delineate some information that's going to give your listeners some perspective on uh, how they can optimize their training program. Excellent. Uh, as, a, as a background, let's just go into that for a little bit. Um, Travis and I have a connection. Um, Travis's fiance is uh, is one of my athletes that I coach, but she is, uh, I will say, heavily into <laughs> the uh, the hit style or or CrossFit, if you will, um, style of, of lifting. Um, so, uh, why don't you just give us a little bit of background on yourself um, and and you know your uh, your running? We did meet running. We met at a race. We met at the the Headwaters Thirty K. Um, so, just give us a little background about you, okay? Yeah, I would love to give some background. So. I have been on very extreme ends of the spectrum as far as athletics is concerned. So we'll talk a little bit about personal background and then professional as well. Uh, I started out my athletic endeavors as a year round track and field and cross country athlete. So pretty much for four years year round, all I did was run. Uh, getting into college, I played rugby. And that actually gave me this opportunity transitioning into powerlifting. Uh, found a new love for that when I went to college. Uh, I have dabbled in CrossFit for the past, I would say, greater part of five or six years. And uh, two years ago, with my fiance being the catalyst that led me to this, I started doing trail races. And now I uh, very slowly compete in ultra marathons and have gained a new perspective on what the real end of the spectrum as far as endurance sport is concerned. Uh, so on top of my personal athletic endeavors, uh, I, I have received my undergraduate education from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, so go Tar Heels. Uh, and I received my doctorate degree from Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. And then I went on to do uh, an orthopedic residency with the practice that I work for now, PT Solutions. Right on. Oh, man. So very diverse background for you. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so, um, I mean, you know, there's um, there, there is a, a bit of stigma sometimes when we mention CrossFit. Some people um, may roll their eyes um, and some people may be right with you. Um, so let's, you know, let's kind of talk about like, um, when we talk about strength training, what, what are we in essence talking about? Are we, are we be talking about hit workouts or are we talking about the Olympic style lifting, the power lifting, which you had mentioned, what, what kind of things are we talking about here? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that to, to have a, a question maybe that even would precede why we're talking about strength training in the first place is an athlete will come to me, somebody coming into my clinic, whether they are injured, looking for uh, performance enhancement. And the question that comes up is how can you make me a better runner? That is ultimately, since that is going to be the majority of your audience is going to be listening to this, that's the question that comes up first is how can you make me a better runner? And one thing that I will typically gravitate towards is strength training. And that's because it is largely an untapped resource in the endurance community because of 
stereotypes that you will see and some some stigmas that kind of carry with that. So how does strength training, and I want to give a few definitions on some things, how does strength training optimize performance? If we are to evaluate uh, how good of a runner are you, we sometimes will see in the literature something like a VO2 max evaluation. And VO2 max is going to be the maximal rate of oxygen consumption uh, at, a, at a measured intensity and incrementally increasing intensity. And VO2 max, although it's not really falling out of favor, people are starting to look at other variables to evaluate how can you become a better runner. One of those things is called running economy. So running economy, whereas if I have a VO2 max of 60, and I have somebody beside of me that also has a VO2 max of 60, which would be very good, what's going to be a different factor that allows me to evaluate how athletic, how good, who is going to be the better runner? So running economy is where at a steady state level of effort, uh, it is the oxygen consumption or the energy demand at a particular velocity. So although somebody might have the same VO2 max, if I am a more efficient runner and I actually utilize less oxygen at a submax rate, there's a good chance that I'm going to be the better athlete. And why we talk about that is we see now in the literature, and it's not something that's new, Aaron. This has been documented for the better part of two, maybe even three decades now, that strength training and power training are extremely effective at improving running economy. So by strength training, you utilize less oxygen. It's less of an effort for you to run at a submax rate. Right. So as far as definitions go, when we are talking about strength training, strength is just the ability to produce force. It's the ability to overcome resistance. Power training is the ability to overcome resistance in a short amount of time. So strength training is seen as more of an absolute. Power training is more relative to a time domain. And then endurance is just the ability to maintain or repeat a given power output. So on the, the simplest baseline explanation of this is if you can get better at producing force and being efficient at it and doing it in a short period of time, that therefore improves your running economy, which therefore improves your endurance. So the type of strength training, strength and power are both essential. And that's what I want to get into a little bit today. I think a great example of that is uh, Paula Radcliffe. Um, she's a world record holder or you know, we have an asterisk right now on the world record, but I mean, she was, we'll just say she's the world record holder uh, for the marathon. And um, her VO2 max when she was younger was higher, but she was, uh, as her career prog progressed and she got older and her VO2 decreased, um, she actually became faster because her running economy became better. She became stronger. And that's, I mean, just emphasizing all the points you just made, you know, Paula Radcliffe, amazing runner, 215 in the marathon incredible performance. Um, you know, she, her VO2 decreased, it became less and she still performed at a higher, I mean, elite beyond elite world level. 
And uh, just because she improved on her running economy, which is, you know, to your point, and a lot of it came from from strength training and becoming more efficient as a runner. Um, so thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> so, um, you know, we we as runners, um, <laughs> a lot of us abide by the law of specificity. And, you know, we we say, well, if we're going to be good runners, uh, we run. <laughs> that's, you know, that seems, you know, like the, the point of, of running. But uh, so, you know, that said, uh, lifting becomes kind of we have like a, a, a resistance to the, you know, to, to lift um, and to to add something more to our schedule. Um, so um, can you list some of the benefits so we can understand why we should incorporate strength training? Absolutely. And something that you just mentioned there, I think it is so crucial to understand where this stereotype comes from, because historically, endurance training and resistance training are very much stereotypically at odds. They are literally on the opposite ends of the metabolic spectrum. Uh, and they're differing in philosophy and adaptations. And it is thought that progression in one impedes the performance of another. And in exercise physiology terms, uh, that is something that's called the interference effect or the interference phenomenon. And I, I just have to say that that is such a, uh, a false stigma that it's it's important to make sure that the uh, the athletes and the readers, the viewers, that they all understand that just because you are specialized in one does not mean that incorporating another can also provide you benefits. So the stereotypes of I don't want to get bulky, I don't want to get slow, I don't want to get hut heavy, you know, I'm a runner, I like to run. So why does strength training and why does power training have such a positive impact on endurance sports. So you see that with performance changes, you are going to have changes in musculotendinous stiffness. You are going to see an increased capacity to recruit higher threshold motor units. So literally the neural adaptations of muscular recruitment improve and change. And you are going to see a change in the ability to store and release elastic energy. And that is going to result in an increase in a shift in this force velocity curve and this force power production relationship. And that is what ties into running economy. So you literally get better at taking the ground reaction force when my foot makes contact with the ground and how my body transitions that force through my body to propel me forward, strength and power training do just that. So those are the benefits of strength and power training. Awesome. Um, also recovery, right? It's going to help us recovery because we're not putting as much force and exertion on our bodies, correct? Yeah, a huge benefit of that as well. Uh, you mentioned the, the principle of specificity. It is true. If you want to get better at running, you have to run. But also another principle in exercise physiology is variability. If there is some method of exercise that gives you a carryover without having to always do the same thing, you get the added benefit can train at a higher relative intensity for a longer period of time and also decrease risk for injury 
and allow for uh, greater periods of uh, athletic capacity. Awesome. Um, you had also mentioned uh, one of the, you know, the kind of uh, myths that um, we are, we're going to gain too much muscle mass. We're going to gain too much weight. Um, is that something we can nip in the bud? Yes, absolutely. So two parts to that. One, uh, there's a very big difference in non-functional hypertrophy that might be detrimental to performance versus uh, functional hypertrophy where you're going to have task-specific, we'll say, development that's going to allow enhancement in endurance performance. So having uh, increased cross-sectional area for your quadriceps muscles, for your gluteals, for your hamstrings, the soleus, the gastroc soleus, calf muscles, uh, and, and anything along the, the axial musculature for the trunk as well, that is all functional hypertrophy. So putting a direct negative association on gaining mass and it being detrimental to performance is another stereotype that is really just not true. Uh, the other part of that is people assume that if I even look at a dumbbell or at a barbell, that hypertrophy magically happens. And all of a sudden, I am, uh, I'm uh, 4% body mass, uh, body fat, and I've gained 70 pounds of lean mass, and I can triple all of my original lifts, but now I'm slower. Unfortunately, the physiology just doesn't work that way. So it takes a lot longer to develop true hypertrophy and with intentional exercise prescription, as far as sets, repetitions, the domains that you're training in, when you are training for strength and when you are training for power, hypertrophy is a subtle and less uh, intense side effect that you might get from lifting weights. But if you are training at a higher relative intensity, you don't just magically put on muscle mass. In the exercise community, uh, there are repetition ranges and there are percentages of what you can train at that will lend more towards hypertrophy, which is just muscle growth, or that lend towards muscle endurance, or that lend towards power production and strength, which is what we've uh, talked about thus far. So it's, it's the matter of uh, you won't magically gain uh, extra 20 pounds on your frame by lifting weights. And if you are lifting with the right intention of intensity, then you will get all the added benefits of strength training without so much hypertrophy. And you see that in strength-based sports, powerlifting and weightlifting like you would see in the Olympics. Those are weight class sports. And those individuals are trying to lift the maximal amount of weight without gaining mass so that they can compete in their respective weight classes. Nice. Awesome. Thank you. Um, let's talk about the, the training for, for a bit here. Um, so if, if we're, we're not doing anything at the moment, let's say, you know, I, like, let's say I didn't lift, um, how should I incorporate it? How often, um, you know, let's, let's start there. How often? Yeah, absolutely. So if we're looking at the frequency that is needed, and also, I think it's good to back up and say, who does this apply for? Who is really going to benefit from it? 
say that you're a, a master's level athlete, is it really that beneficial for me to strength train if I'm a mid-distance ru runner, if I'm an ultra marathon runner, if I just compete in road races, 5Ks, who is this going to benefit? The answer is everybody. The principles of exercise physiology don't change as we age. They don't change according to gender. They don't change according to uh, even training experience. So by doing strength training, regardless of where you are in your running experience, uh, in, your, in your athletic experience, it is beneficial for everybody. And that is something that is very clearly documented uh, when we were going back to running economy and say we look at a master's athlete by incorporating maximal effort resistance training, they get substantial increases in the running economy. We see upwards of uh, six, eight, sometimes upwards of 10% improvements in running economy at marathon level paces in master's athletes. So it is beneficial for everybody. Now, the frequency, the, the domain, how often should I do this? And then we can talk about a little bit where you would plug that in. Uh, we see benefits and it's great because you can always look at the literature and see literally what are the programs? What was the domain? How did they schedule this type of resistance training for athletes? You can see very clear, definitive progression incorporating strength training two times a week. And that is, uh, I would say, even probably not the bare minimum. I would recommend that to allow for enough frequency that you can spread out and do different types of exercises. You wouldn't have to hit total body training every single day that you were strength training if it were only once a week. So I would say a minimum of two times a week. And we even see in very high-level collegiate athletes that their strength training programming, depending on the, the phase that they are in, depending on where they are in their season, you'll see those athletes in a general prep phase do strength training upwards of three times a week. So two to three times a week is enough to give you the stimulus, not so much that it is so time consuming that you have nothing, no time for anything else. Uh, and also gives you the uh, capacity to have variety in your session as well. Nice. Thank you. Um, so if we're doing this two to three times a week, um, you know, uh, and we're looking at a runner's schedule, are there better days to do them on? For instance, um, you know, should we make a recovery day, a strict recovery day um, and add you know, the strength training to a day where we're already exerting ourselves, such as um, a workout day or potentially like a long run day um, where our body's already, you know, in deficit. That way, recovery days are truly that a recovery day or is strength training not going to take as much out of us that we can incorporate on a recovery day? Yeah, so I will go off of the rule that whichever is most important for you that day that should help you to order and prioritize what you're going to do. I think there is a lot of utility at keeping rest days true rest days. Uh, if we were to scrap the whole conversation that we've just had up to this point and say, what is really the most important thing to improve athleticism? Uh, the best athletes are the ones that are the best at recovering and resting and sleeping. 
and maintaining adequate nutrition and hydration, I think that is a completely different talk. That's a little sidebar. But if we are looking at where do I put in my strength training days, uh, it's extremely important based off of the type of movements that you're doing. If it does require uh, greater degrees of concentration, maintenance of form, uh, I would say the difference between a barbell versus some sort of machine-based exercise where it's harder to, to mess that up based off of neurologic fatigue you don't want to be extremely fatigued going into a barbell workout where you are trying to lift heavy weight relative to what your maximal is, and that happen after a very heavy exertional run. So it's a little bit of a give and take because at the same time, if I have a session where maybe I am going through a circuit and the, the importance of maintaining form is not so much off of my neuromuscular fatigue, but to where I can go through this workout, still get the benefits and not increase my risk of injury, then you can absolutely prioritize it after a run. So it really, unfortunately, the answer is it depends. And it does depend on the intensity of the run. It depends on what your goal is for that day. So if you're going to uh, do a timed run or a distance run, and you're at 60 percent, 65% of your exertional effort, you can absolutely put strength training before that run. And that is totally fine. Or you could put it after that run. If you are doing a tempo run, and it is extremely important for you to get a accurate time estimate on that tempo run, that's your priority for that day. And strength training can take a backseat compared to where you were ordering that. So it does depend. Okay, cool. Um, so my, my collegiate coach was, um, was, he was a big advocate for strength training. Um, but we did it, um, we did it differently for cross country than we did for track. Um, in cross country, we did more, um, kind of circuit training, um, you know, where we based it on a, a time interval. We had specific, um, non-weight bearing. It was more, uh, body weight exercises that we did. Um, and we set it for time with, uh, shorter recoveries. And as the season progressed, we increased the amount of time we were doing the exercise and decreased the amount of rest. Whereas when we moved to indoor and outdoor track, we became, uh, we went into the gym and we lifted in the gym with, uh, specific exercises that a strength coach came up with us for us. Um, so, you know, does, does the type of lifting we do, does that vary based on, you know, what type of athlete we're dealing with? So if we had, let's say, you know, a 5k and 10k runner or a marathon runner or an ultra runner, um, you know, obviously OCR runners, they're, they're going to have you know, very specific type of workouts. So I, I can see where that would, you know, have a, a workout of its own. But when we get into these different disciplines, um, you know, road versus trail, uh, you know, should we be doing different things, um, you know, as that type of runner? Yeah, that is a great question. So to unpack that a little bit, I think that if you are looking at producing optimal results, because you mentioned a couple of things there, you mentioned circuit training, you mentioned calisthenics, you then mentioned uh, more, I would say, stereotypical barbell, dumbbell, uh, gym training. And if we are talking about what is optimal, if we go into the literature and we have some comparative analysis of all of those things. If I look at individuals that with proper programming and with the 
familiarization of a movement. So you don't want to go into strength training blind and have no experience to it whatsoever. There is always going to be a benefit to familiarizing yourself with an exercise. So you can take all of this with a grain of salt in that there needs to be a learning curve to that. Uh, If you are looking at individuals that have been familiarized with weight training and you are giving them percentages based off of what their maximal effort is. So I have a maximal effort group. I have a moderate intensity group, and I'll define those percentages in just a second. And I have a control group. The control group would be just the the people that are running and doing only running and nothing else. The resistance training group are the ones that are training uh, your typical three sets of 10, five to six exercises at 65 to 70%. And then you have the maximal effort group that's training somewhere in the 80 to 90% of their one rep max for less repetitions. We're talking three to five, maybe even six repetitions for three to four sets. If we were to order what is optimal and who gets the best running economy results, the people that take a six-week training program and train at 80 to 90% in those rep ranges versus the ones that are performing three sets of 10 at 65 to 70%. Uh, we actually see in some groups that the moderate intensity group don't get improvements in the running economy. <laughs> so there's a clear line in the literature that there's definitively people benefit from higher intensity sometimes benefit from moderate intensity, and then the control group will usually not see improvements in the running economy whenever you compare it to the the maxed effort groups. Now, that is not to say that calisthenic exercises, that circuit training, that there is not benefit to that. But at the same time, uh, that is not so different from more steady state cardio. The effort might vary a little bit, but it is still more relatively continuous work. Whereas with strength training, there is definitive periods of really high effort and then resting or no effort in between sets. So there is a difference. There's a hierarchy to those exercises. Uh, I heard a quote not too long ago on another podcast that really stimulated some thought with me that said running is really nothing more than alternating single leg hops. So being able to tolerate and produce for single leg, whether that is jumping, uh, it is hopping, striding, anything that you can do to work on, and that is more calisthenic based, that that will give some transition to running economy as well. But there is a very clear line on what is best, what is optimal, what can provide you with some results, and then what is too similar to your running, uh, and you need to have something different, a different variable to to give benefit. Cool. Thank you. Is, uh, with with strength training, um, is there um, a periodization that that you know we should follow? Um, you know, in, in running, obviously, we have um, a base phase. Um, and then, you know, we have our pre-competitive kind of training cycle where we're, we're adding workouts, um, we have a taper and then obviously race. So, you know, is there, is there something we should follow along a similar line where maybe even the lifts change, or perhaps we don't lift or we don't lift as much, you know, do we follow that similar type of, of periodization? Yes. So 
if you are looking at uh, an individual that has a true A race, so it does depend based off of your priorities, what your training year looks like, how many races do you want to do, which race is the most important. And if an athlete were to come to me and say, hey, this is my A race, uh, it is eight months out, then I would plan for that a little different than how I would plan for somebody that might have two or three races that all have fairly equal weight throughout the training year. So let's go off of the person that has the, the top A race. Uh, and we're on pretty similar levels, that sounds like. there For me, there is a general prep phase there is a competitive phase, there is a peak phase, and then there's going to be an active rest period in there. So if we go off of that, the macro cycle is going to be that whole eight-month period. Uh, the mesocycle is going to be plugged into different phases of training for each one of those phases. So I am going to, in the general prep phase, that might be, we'll say, four weeks long. And that's a pretty typical mesocycle where you have this training period, this is the focus, four to six weeks, you taper off and then you add something different, whether that's a, a different method of exercise or higher intensity or what have you, but let's just talk about that. So if I have a general prep phase, I have an athlete that's uh, very competitive, high level, we're nowhere near their race. Uh, I would have them doing three lifting sessions a week, and they would train in the 80 to 85% uh, rep range, uh, so, excuse me, for their intensity. And the rep range would match based off of what's best in that, in that intensity. Uh, as we go more into a competitive phase, so that could stretch as far as eight to 10 weeks, and there are two little cycles in between that they would do the same thing, two to three lifting sessions this time, and the intensity would go up to 85 to 95% of their max. So we're really dialing in higher intensity because we see that higher intensity improves running economy more. So as we are giving them more load, they're actually becoming even more efficient in their running economy. And after that, 10-week, 12-week phase, whatever that ends up being, when we get into the competition phase, their lifting sessions would drop down. They would maintain that 85 to 90% of their effort with less running sessions. And there might be a three-week taper in there if they have a true A race to where we would take away volume and take away running volume as well, ultimately leading to them being able to optimally perform for that a race so in a very rough way that is how i would uh, taper somebody how i would introduce strength training the frequency of it and the intensity would go up as we get closer to their a race within a pretty stark drop about a month out cool. um so <clears throat> you know obviously a lot of people um especially right now they may not be able to afford um, a coach, you know, um, do you have any good resources that you might suggest for people that they can look, perhaps learn um, some, you know, some exercises that they can be doing? Um, anything you can suggest for them? Absolutely. So, yeah, we're in very interesting times right now. Uh, people 
unfortunately might not be able to uh, shell out the money to to hire a strength coach to to provide some guidance on that. And I think that based off of the experience of the individual, based off of what kind of background somebody has uh, coming into this, the answer will change a little bit. So if you have some experience and some background with anything, calisthenics, plyometric training, uh, power training, strength training, any any kind of level of experience uh, that I would feel comfortable with somebody being able to utilize a program that they can find off of the internet. I will say that there are so many resources. It is completely endless uh, to provide <laughs> to provide just one. Uh, it, it, it's it's kind of hard to do that. So I'll say that there are a lot of resources out there. Absolutely. Uh, I'm actually going to provide my email because I would love to serve as a resource to direct people to give a more specific answer uh, because I don't want to give a, a blind recommendation and say uh, this one particular strength group or, or website or YouTube channel would be best uh, because I want it to be tailored more towards the individual. Uh, on the other side of that, if you have somebody that is uh, inexperienced, totally green, no barbell or dumbbell or weight training experience whatsoever. Uh, I, I would say that that is more important for that individual to get specific guidance uh, only because the two things that matter the most when it comes to inducing a run-related injury are errors in training and previous current injuries. Those are the two things that matter most. It's not what your uh, stride rate is. It's not what type of shoe you wear. It's not how much you pronate. Those things have not been shown in literature to be any kind of indicators for injury. Uh, the things that matter most are training errors and previous injury, uh, which is where I come in, right? I'm the, I'm the physical therapist. So I, I get the, the best of all worlds in helping somebody to get over a previous injury and also to provide some guidance with them as they're going through their training. So for a complete novice, I wouldn't want uh, blind implementation of training because that is something that does increase risk for injury. Strength training does not, but when you don't program appropriately, that's what you tend to see. So it, it does depend on the experience of the person. Great. Awesome. Um, are there any, um, you know, of any online resources or um, have you experienced any way of kind of, you know, since we can't right now have a lot of contact, um, any way that, you know, if, if a person is, is lifting and wants to make sure that they're doing it properly, I mean, are there ways that, you know, you've found that are successful for, for monitoring and watching and making sure, you know, for instance, if they're doing a squat that, you know, they're doing the squat correctly or doing a deadlift correctly, um, you know, like, is there a way you can help monitor or do you know of, of ways? Like, what do you think on that? Yeah, again, I do think that there's some individuality to that answer. Um, there is an endless number of resources. Actually, I will give one example. Uh, there is a community on Reddit, reddit.com, that is specific towards powerlifting, uh, specific towards weightlifting, specific towards Olympic lifting, and even many sub-communities that are involved with running. 
And there is no problem with taking a video of yourself, recording it, putting it on there and asking for advice. Now, I will say you can also take that with a grain of salt because it's more beneficial to have a relationship with somebody that you trust, that you know their credentials and can provide. Uh, But you can also at least get some community feedback on something that you may or may not be doing well if there's something that is glaringly obvious. So that would be one rough recommendation. I've had some patients uh, and some athletes that prior to working with me have done that before and have seen some pretty good success with it. But that's just one very loose recommendation. I wouldn't uh, make that the absolute, just an option. Right on. Um, One recent article that I read, um, I don't remember which it was, uh, it was either I think it might have been Trail Runner magazine, but it could have been Ultra Running magazine. I'm not sure. They talked about um, plyometrics and adding plyometrics uh, as a way to um, to kind of you know um, maybe supplement some strength training that we, you know we maybe we can't do right now. You know we don't have the equipment um, or the access to the gyms. Um, so how do you feel about plyometrics? And can you talk a little bit about those? Yeah, plyometrics are fantastic. If you were to take the big umbrella term of power training, where power was being able to overcome force, overcome some resistance in the shortest amount of time possible, plyometric training is just power training utilizing your own body weight. So plyometric training can almost be seen as a a subcategory of power training. Uh, that goes back to the comment I made about running really being nothing more than single leg hops. If you can improve your hopping ability, your jumping ability, uh, even sprinting, although it's not specifically so much going into a gym and strength training, being able to relatively know what your top end speed is improves power, which also can help improve running economy. So I am absolutely an advocate for plyometric training as it pertains to jumping, hopping, and sprinting. Right on. Cool. Um, so um, a person, you know, like I said, they don't have a lot of equipment right now. Um, and, uh, you know, is, um, you know, we talked about kind of lifting and such, but um, where does the, the core exercises that we always hear so much come into here? Like, is that something that, that people can be doing right now that's still beneficial? Um, you know, we talk about planks and, um, you know, all the various exercises in that regard. Is that, you know, is that relevant right now as well? Yes, absolutely. It is relevant. Uh, I will add in that if you are programming for certain movements, exercises, when everybody is allowed to go back into the gyms and you start doing this uh, to focus on what type of movements will give you the best return on investment. Uh, it, It always centers around movements that are pushing, pulling, hinging, squatting, picking things up. And all of those in essence, one thing they all have in common is that they are compound movements So a compound movement is going to involve multi-joint movement. If that is a a pull-up, if that is a push-up or a bench press, if that is a squat, a lunge, a deadlift, when we talk about core, uh, that that phrase has been uh, bastardized in the fitness community to be interpreted as only the abdominals. 
And that is far, far from true. The core musculature is going to be anything that attaches onto the axial skeleton. So axial being my midline, my trunk, and then my appendicular being my extremities. And there's a lot of crossover for that too. So compound exercises will hit your core, including abdominals, but also all of the other muscles that are going to allow you to maintain form even under fatigue. So planks are fine. Absolutely. Plank is a great isometric exercise. So I will not uh, say anything negative about that. To add in that variety and variability, and if you're going to choose what gives you the best return on your investment, then it's going to be something that is a compound exercise. Is there anything that we shouldn't do? Anything that could cause detriment? You know, sometimes I hear like sit-ups, for instance, you know, that they can cause a lot of uh, back problems if, you know, if you're doing them incorrectly or even if you're doing them. So anything that you think that we should probably tell the listeners, maybe you shouldn't be doing this. Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> so to, to go off of the sit-ups comment uh, for just a second, we have seen now, uh, and this is something that I have uh, researched pretty extensively and have a lot of interest in personally, uh, because the thing that I treat more than anything else in the clinic is back pain. Uh, and I think throughout the rehab community, anywhere from 50 to 60% of all of the people that come into my clinics have some sort of primary spinal complaint. So we can go from neck down and sit-ups tend to get a bad rap. When you are looking at uh, movements that you shouldn't do or things to avoid increasing risk for injury, uh, I will say that there really isn't one single movement or exercise that is going to be detrimental when we're applying this to the general population. The reason, probably the, the biggest reasons, two or three, that I tend to see and hear from people that have hesitation with doing squats or with doing lunges or doing a pull-up or bench press or whatever the movement happens to be, sit-ups even, um, you will see people really go all in sometimes on an exercise or on an exercise prescription. So people say squats hurt my knees, deadlifts hurt my back. Uh, that goes back to our conversation that there needs to be some sort of familiarization, some sort of scaling into learning the movement and then being able to implement it appropriately as you build into the experience of the exercise. So a lot of times when we implement something in training that is novel, that is unique, that is outside of this typical bubble of our intensity, of our mode of exercise, the delayed onset muscle soreness, and sometimes even more so than what comes from that, that delayed onset muscle soreness being in the 24 to 72 typical hour period after performing an exercise, sometimes because that exercise was done to such an extreme, it's going to cause prolonged negative effects. And it's just because your body is recovering from that. It was such a novel thing that it was done at such an intensity that it's going to cause that undue soreness. In this case, uh, Murph is a very popular CrossFit workout that is 
coming up this weekend that people all across the country do on Memorial Day. And people that have never done Murph before, where you're running a mile, you're doing 100 pull-ups, you're doing 200 push-ups, 300 squats, running a mile again. If you've never done that before, you probably won't be able to move the next two or three days. <laughs> does, does that mean that running or squatting or pulls or push-ups are bad for me? Absolutely not. I just haven't had my body attenuated to that type of exercise yet. Uh, another reason that it could be that people have some negative effect from a movement or from an exercise is that it was done incorrectly. Uh, and so that's where I think it is extremely important and it is beneficial to have a coach, to have someone that has that experience to provide guidance and to provide some correction or some different way to optimize the exercise uh, with, with getting the added benefit of performing the movement to provide some carryover. Beautiful. Um, so on the opposite side, are there anything that we do exercise wise and lifting that's completely useless? Um, for instance, like bench press, <laughs> um, would you, would you put that in a category for runners? That's, you know, I mean, I don't mean to say useless, but like we could focus on better things than trying to work our, our pecs. <laughs> Yeah, great, great question. So when I was referencing uh, one thing earlier where we categorized the different types of runners, whether they were running or lifting at a high intensity, a moderate intensity, or a lower intensity, those three groups of individuals, this is taken from an article that was in uh, the Journal of Sport and Conditioning Research. So in the mid-2000s, they took these master's-level athletes and they had them exercise two days a week. One day was devoted to lower body, and one day was devoted to upper body, where they were doing bench press, uh, a lat pull down. They were doing uh, cable presses. They were doing cable pulls. They were doing even single arm exercises, tricep extension and, and dumbbell curls. And I think that to stay with a the theme of what I was saying before about there's really not a bad exercise there really isn't a useless exercise either because running is dependent on your stride frequency and your stride length. And that's going to determine your velocity. But if you have a certain stride frequency, your upper extremities need to match the capacity for your legs to have that turnover. So on the most extreme end of the spectrum, if you were to try and watch a hundred meter race and tell the athletes they're not allowed to move their arms when they run, I think the 100-meter times would be substantially slower. Now, that principle will still carry over to distance level, mid and long distance and ultra-distance athletes. You still need to have the capacity to maintain form, to maintain posture, to maintain workload, with your upper extremities just as much as, as with your lower extremities. So there is the, the thought again of non-functional versus functional hypertrophy, non-functional versus functional strength. Strength is never a weakness and improving your bench press is not going to be detrimental to improving your running. If anything, being able to maintain your upper body in the position that is most optimal to your running actually will give you carryover to improve your lower quarter function as well. So definitely incorporate upper body exercises too, 
because you have to match what your lower body is doing to your upper body. I would love to see. Maybe that'll be a, a special event we'll see in the coming Olympics. It'll be the no hands 100 meter run. <laughs> My brother and I are are complete opposites. He's uh, he's built like a yield sign up top, you know, so he's like, <laughs> he's top heavy with these like, you know, chicken legs. You know, and I'm, you know, obviously I have a strong lower body. I'm not going to say that mine are bulky, but you know, I have, I have a strong lower body and, you know, like a, a leaner upper body. Um, so, you know, when, when we go into the gym, it's, it's pretty funny because, you know, he's, he's throwing on all this weight and, uh, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely less weight and, uh, you know, I, but he's definitely lifting for a different purpose than I am. So, um, but <laughs> awesome. Um, so, um, you know, we uh, right now we're, uh, we're we're starting to transition to a time um, as you mentioned. We're, we're Memorial Day weekend here. We're recording on the uh, May twenty second, um, and things are starting to open up. Our gyms aren't quite there yet, unfortunately. Um, but um, if someone were to look to the future and just say, "Well, I want to kind of do this stuff at home," what type of equipment do you think would be um, beneficial? You know, I mean. Uh, having a bar with some weights, uh, you know, some uh, some resistance bands. What kind of things would you say uh, would make a good home gym? Yeah, what are the essentials, right? So I think that the barbell is king. You cannot get the same type of external loading, which is what really the theme of this conversation is. Is that if you can improve your tolerance to a heavy external load and you can learn to move it fast, you will become a better runner. So a barbell and plates appropriate to whatever workloads that you will be working in is absolutely essential and some sort of way to rack that barbell. So a power rack, a half rack, there are some pretty inexpensive, uh, very economical power racks that you can buy. And I would say that if you are saving up for something, that would be the first purchase that I would have because you can do an endless number of exercises with a barbell and with, with weights on that barbell. That would be my, my primary purchase. Actually, when I got my home gym, that was the first thing that I bought was a barbell and plates and a power rack. And if I had nothing else, I could still get a great workout in. Nice. Sweet. Um, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of times we hear kettlebells, um, you know, are, are kettlebells like a good supplement as well. Um, you know, for, especially like space, right. That, that bar can be you know, pretty bulky, you know, weights obviously take up a lot of space as well. So, um, you know, like if we just got like a, uh, whatever, you know, is, is conducive to that person, whatever weights conducive, is that a good supplement as well? Definitely. Yeah. If it were up to me, I know that everyone doesn't have the same passion for lifting that I might have. But uh, if I had to choose between having my home gym and having my couch, uh, unfortunately, I'd have to put my couch out on the lawn and the barbell would make its way into the living room. Luckily, I don't have to do that. But for people for people that are uh, unfortunately don't have the space, uh, uh, there is a financial component to that as well. There is nothing wrong with kettlebells or with dumbbells. Those are also great. It allows you to appropriately add extra load, extra resistance, just anything that is going to cause challenge uh, with an extra extra weight to do any movement that might be appropriate for your exercise prescription. So yes, 
Kettlebells are totally fine. Dumbbells are fine. Barbells, great too. Uh, any of those are very just appropriate options. Cool. Um, any type of ancillary things that you see um, that you know um, that are on the market that are are either beneficial or even like this is a waste of money. Anything that you see out there right now? Ooh, good question. Yeah, all of the uh, the fitness websites have really been picked clean on a lot of the good stuff. So we'll probably have to be waiting until about Black Friday before we start seeing. Yeah, well, I mean, deal I think again. Well done. Craigslist is going to be. Yeah. <laughs> you're going to buy whatever you want. <laughs> I have Craigslist bookmarked right now, just ready <laughs> for when people start selling their home gym equipment. Uh, I think if you if you're going to prioritize and you're going to avoid certain things really it, it comes back to what are the things that are going to give you the most benefit? It's going to be the barbell. It's going to be the dumbbells. It's going to be the kettlebells. Those are the things that you should really spend your money on the most. And especially if you are a, a novice weight lifter, if you have no experience, you will get years of physiologic gains, benefit, adaptation from just having that. And other things that you might or, or you know, maybe you want to get, that is fine. But those things are going to give you the best return on investment. And you'll spend enough money by that point to where you say, okay, I'm good. I've got my home gym and I don't need anything else. Cool. Um, let's talk about a session uh, a little bit deeper. Um, all right. So, you know, running, we typically, we warm up, we cool down, um, you know, uh, maybe do a dynamic warm up then kind of just take it easy getting into the run, especially if we're going to do a workout, have that warm up period, uh, you know, do our workout, cool down, perhaps, you know, do a, a static stretch, foam roll, all that good stuff with a, with a lifting session. Are we looking at the same type of thing? Are we looking at that? You know, is there a warm up? you know, how, how do we look at that? Absolutely. So I'll say from personal experience, what I've seen when I was uh, very much involved in the cross country track community and also now in the trail and, and ultra running community, I don't really see a whole lot of warming up <laughs> in those people. Uh, and the same thing can be said for the typical gym goer. And that is something that I would definitely advocate for that a warm up does need to be implemented. Uh, the biggest, import, most important priority is increasing your blood flow and increasing body temperature. Now, there is a lot of debate over what is the best way to warm up. And I don't think I can do that justice today with the time that we have. I think that would be a separate conversation, but I'll say that the principles of how you prepare for the type of exercise you're doing, it needs to be one with the goal of getting your core body temperature warmed up. So even if you are lifting, if you go for a quick jog, whether that's two, three, five minutes, whatever that takes. If you have an elliptical or an aerodyne or a salt bike at home, just getting on that to increase your heart rate, that is the first priority. Cool. The second thing is going to be whatever that movement is that you are preparing for, you take anywhere from two to five to seven sets to gradually incrementally increase the weight that you are ultimately going to work at. So if I try to work at 85 to 90% of what I can back squat, that's going to take me a couple of sets of lighter weight 
to get to that. So you have to have some stepwise progression with movement specificity, just like you would want to have uh, some gradual increase in running and strides if I'm performing a 5K time trial or a marathon even. I still want to warm up and attenuate, get myself used to that speed that I'll be working at. Right on. Sweet. You doing okay on time? Oh, yeah. No, I'm good. Okay. Uh, so uh, within a session, if we're looking at what we're doing, um, for instance, if I were to say I was going to do uh, a HIIT workout, right? Um, do I schedule that uh, the same as, um, you know, like I would, would that be, uh, I guess I'm, what I'm asking is, would that take the place of, of a run day? Um, you know, I like when I look at doing a HIIT workout, it perhaps it's like a half hour to 45 minutes. Um, you know, that seems to be a, a, a pretty substantial effort, you know, and it may incorporate some running. So like, would that take the place of a run day? What do you think on that? Yeah, that's, I think one of the, the biggest training errors that I see with uh, somebody implementing strength training is that they have their running program and they stick to that. They are religious to it. Uh, and then they all of a sudden add in this extra volume and they don't adjust their running program accordingly. So you can look at hip training, power training, strength training, you can look at that as a way to replace some volume of your running. And that will be individual. That will change based off of what phase you're in, how close to your race you are, if you have an A race, where you are in your training program. Uh, I think that it is important that sometimes you're going to use strength training as a replacement for volume and not just a strict addition to your volume. So absolutely, if you have a really hard workout, you need to also have the ability as the athlete to recognize, okay, I am definitely fatigued right now. I need to take this opportunity to rest or just do this for that day. And that's okay. Cool. And when we're, uh, when we're scheduling, um, do you um, believe that the variation of the workout, um, for instance, if, if we're in, let's say we're in pre-competitive phase, um, like if we were doing scheduling for that and, and lifting, should you maintain one type of lifting, uh, or should you have variation in that? In other words, like if I was powerlifting, should I just stick to the powerlifting routine or are there days where like including a, a hit workout would be acceptable? Yeah. So on that macro scale, if I am programming for an individual and they have a, a big race eight months out, the core of what their program as far as strength training goes is not going to have a lot of variety as far as the movements go, because I want to get the best neuromuscular benefit. You want to be able to progress in a specific series of movements. So to be able to learn how to squat with heavy enough weight to get that benefit, to be able to lunge, to be able to even just do leg extensions and leg curls, uh, those core exercises, and there are others, that, that is just an example. Deadlifting is fantastic as well. So I don't want to just think those are the only things. But for an example, those core movements 
will be in some form or fashion plugged into the program throughout the year. And the variety comes from the sets, the reps, the rest, the frequency. So looking more at changing the variables of that particular movement that you're going to get benefit from by doing and learning and continuously getting stronger in rather than continuous various movements that don't allow for as much progressive overload. You can have a hit workout and it's really, really hard and you are able to achieve intensity and effort and it overloads and, and you're, yeah, it got a great workout. I sweat, um, got my heart rate up, but progressive overload where you are learning a movement, you're getting stronger in the movement, you're able to progress that, that is even more beneficial. So a HIT program can absolutely be thrown in there if you are crunched for time, if you need to get in something that is going to be higher intensity. But if we're talking about long-lasting benefits, stability in the exercise series with progressive overload is going to be preferable. Right on. Um, we've, we've already got an hour into the show and I, I don't think we ever really defined what, um, <laughs> what a hit workout is. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, most people will probably know, but can you just take a step back and define what we're talking about when we're talking about hit and what we're talking about when we're talking about powerlifting? Right. So high intensity interval training is the definition of hit. Uh, and that workout style is typically associated with CrossFit. Now, I want to also provide the, the definition where we talk about intensity in strength training versus intensity in a HIT workout. Intensity is the perceived effort. So if I'm doing a HIT workout and I have bouts of very highly uh, intense, quick, uh, or heavy movements, something that I'm trying to do in a quick fashion, and then I get some sort of rest period in between, versus intensity as far as strength training goes, where I know I can uh, deadlift 500 pounds. And if I lift it 80% of my max, I lift it 400 pounds, that is intensity on the strength spectrum. So it's not really so different as far as percentage of maximal effort, but HIIT training gets the, the rep of I'm trying to move faster, or I'm trying to do something quickly, and then I get an interval of rest. Intensity and strength is based off of percentage of maximal capacity for lifting. Excellent. <clears throat> um, with the HIIT workout, as you just described, a lot of times we're trying to do as many exercises or many reps, if, if you will, in a given time. Um, a lot of times, you know, that sacrifices uh, form and technique. Um, so if a person's looking into like um, a, a box, uh, you know, a specific CrossFit gym, how do they know that they're looking into the right gym that's, you know, that's going to help them uh, maintain proper form and also with programming? Because sometimes you walk into, um, you know, a box and they, that you know, they have the program, but it, you know, how do you know that it's good programming for you? Like, do you, like, is there certain certifications people should look for or questions they should ask? Absolutely. So if we talk about CrossFit for just a second, the, the thing that I think CrossFit does the best job of is providing community. So you have 
a connection with a group of people that all suffer in the same place with exercising. And that creates a bond and that develops uh, compliance because you now have your gym buddy that, or your group that you go with and you all exercise together. So the thing that CrossFit really does the best is providing uh, community input. And I will say as far as figuring out which box, if you are going to identify the strengths and programming in uh, attentiveness of the coaches, it is very important to have some sort of onboarding. Now, an onboarding for a new individual going into a CrossFit class uh, should not be one day. There needs to be weeks of development of skills, of more attentive care, of individual coaching to get somebody caught up to what eventually is going to be them doing a movement at a much higher intensity, uh, faster speed, even if the movement is scaled. So I think the the CrossFit boxes that do it the best in bringing on new members that are not experienced are the ones that are able to provide some sort of multi-session onboarding class. As far as certifications go, there are so many now. And it is, if I wanted to in the, the rough hour that we've been talking, I probably could have gone online and bought three certifications uh, in, in this amount of time. So uh, more certifications is not necessarily better. Uh, you want to look at individuals that, yes, do have certifications in CrossFit. They have their own internal certification process. Uh, and there are multiple levels to that. And that's great. But you also have individuals that are trained in exercise physiology, that are trained in uh, in the science of human movement, that have some sort of more formal education. And those people are becoming much more popular in the not just CrossFit community, but just in the fitness community in developing their own styles of training, their own fitness centers. And I think that the perfect mold of all of those things, in addition to experience, uh, in addition to the individual's capacity to coach, uh, it does take some searching. And I think that those are just some things that you can check off that are going to be good for an individual to look at. I would also encourage people to to speak with the instructors um, and make sure that your goals line up with what their programming is going to offer. Um, I think that's really important in any gym, you know, that if somebody's going to, they understand what your goal is and that they're going to be working towards that to help you. I mean, it's a great, you know, community minded, as you said, you know, I, I did CrossFit for a number of years. Um, and you know, it's great to have that community to work out. It pushes you to a different level. Um, you know, but at the same time, you know, was I working towards my goal? Um, I, you know, I'd, I'd have to say I probably wasn't, <laughs> I, you know, I, I like what I was training for, you know, it, it wasn't in line with what I was training for. Um, so, you know, I think people need to, to take that and, and when they're going into a program and remember, you know, it, it's a great class. It's a great community. It's great encouragement, but at the same time, are you working towards your specific goal? Um, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Uh, thank you. <laughs> um, th I mean, there's so much out there right now too. Uh, you know, it, it seems like every, um, you know, every um, uh, strip mall is, is opening, you know, some sort of spinoff, you know, 
Um, so I like, I also just want to caution people, you know, um, that like ask questions, you know, don't just go in there and like, you know, they have a, a free membership offer to, you know, to try it. I mean, yeah, try it, but also ask questions, you know, like what, it, what's the basis of this? What are we doing? You know, like, you know, I'm working towards this. Does that seem to make sense to you? So, um, you know, just, just be careful. Cause like I said, there's so much out there right now. Um, but, um, anyhow, um, what else do we need to touch on? Anything that you uh, you want to talk about? Oh, gosh. I think that we've covered a, a good bit of information. Uh, thank you again, Aaron, for letting me come on here and speak with your viewers. Uh, I just want to plug my email really quick to, to have anybody that is interested in reaching out for me to me personally for more resources. Uh, my email is travis.barefoot at ptsolutions.com. And PT Solutions is uh, the practice. It's a physical therapist owned and operated practice that I have been with for the past six years now. Uh, we're in multiple states. I'm here in the uh, Asheville, Hendersonville area, and we have seven clinics here. Uh, so if anybody's interested in maybe getting some FaceTime, they can always reach out to me that way as well. But yeah, I, I don't think I have anything else to say other than thank you. And uh, I look forward to uh, hearing some feedback and your viewers getting a little bit stronger and then also being stronger runners as a result of that. Uh, and I really appreciate your time. Um, I'll put all that in the, the show notes. Um, and thank you so much for your time, buddy. Um, I really enjoyed the chat and, and I learned a few things too. So <laughs> that's awesome. Aaron, thank, thank you, you so much, man. I appreciate it. Absolutely.